0: Hello, and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn. And in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Rebecca Rebecca Rebecca's a professor from Oxford University's Oxford Internet Institute. She recently swung by the faculty, so I took the opportunity to chat about her work around the topic of digital inequalities and in education. So although technology and education usually gets talked about in fairly positive terms, Rebecca's work looks at how some people are profoundly disadvantaged by digital technology. As she explains, this is a significant problem that's seemingly not improving.
1: It's not really about technology. It's more about understanding how people kind of navigate their way through the world and how different social structures kind of shape or enable our experiences. And so technology is an important part of that, but it definitely isn't the only part.
0: So I guess social scientists have been thinking about social structures all throughout the past hundred years. I mean, what is it that's different about the digital version of these issues? What's new about the digital in your work?
1: So I think for a lot of people, what we're seeing is the digital is being used as a kind of fix for a wider range of social um, problems. So rather than thinking about the bigger issues, the bigger social structural issues that we really need to think about, we instead create these kind of individual fixes for people. So it might be providing them with a laptop or giving them digital skills training, which we hope will kind of transform all of their life circumstances. I think what we really need to focus on is to think more broadly about um, why technology is just part of um, everyday life now. So it will influence the ways that people kind of um, the social outcomes that they experience, but it certainly isn't the whole
0: picture. So I guess this get things fixed mentality is especially prevalent in education, where there's definitely a lot of things that people consider need fixing.
1: Absolutely. So we see a lot of discourse around education, that it's broken, that it's in crisis, that um, somehow it has to be responsible for the wider social issues that we have. Um, But of course it's just one part of society, it can only do so much, Um, but it's the part that people think they can intervene in most Mm. easily and um, it's the part that they think they can most easily design interventions for which we can then more easily deliver, I suppose. So there is a risk here that we're sort of ignoring these bigger social questions and just kind of focusing down on these individual kind of smaller level, easier tweaks to our
0: educational system. Yeah, you're not going to fix structural inequalities just by giving an iPad to every student, are you?
1: No, absolutely not. And so, you know, it might be that it's important that there's a laptop in every classroom because why should some classrooms have it and others not? But that's not going to then change people who are living in areas where there aren't uh, good employment opportunities or there isn't a a straightforward route to higher education because of funding issues
0: and so on. Or not having any breakfast before going to school. Now, in basic terms, you're critiquing this technical fix mentality. But I mean, what theoretical traditions are you drawing on to make sense of this?
1: Um, So, the person whose work I really am informed by is Margaret Archer's work, um, who's written extensively about the kinds of issues around agency and structure. And that's a debate that sociologists, as you know, have been having forever. Um, But what I really like about her work is the fact that she really helps us to think through both the fact that we as individuals can be agentic and we have some sort of control over our lives, uh, but at the same time these social structures are real, they do influence what we do, um, but we can change them. So it allows for an understanding of how, um, as a society, we can make a difference or or kind of um, try and kind of push back a bit on some of the things that are going on to some degree.
0: So so Archer wasn't writing specifically about digital context. I mean, how easily does her work translate over into questions about the digital?
1: That's right. So she didn't really talk so much about the digital, but she does talk about the importance of cultural artefacts and other objects. And so if you think about technology as just one element Um, that you can connect to wider social structures, then um, you can start to build out uh, really interesting theoretical ideas. And people like Elder Vass, for example, have started to do that. So I think there's a real opportunity here because some of the challenges that we have when we think about digital inequality is either we have um, a lot of focus on um, people's agency and... um, that somehow they can transform their conditions mm-hmm. without really thinking about the structure, or we have this kind of inevitable technologies determining people's lives and we can't get over
0: it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So, I mean, moving away from theory, Oxford's beginning to develop a specific research focus on digital inequalities in education. So, I mean, we've had talk of a digital divide since the 1990s. Why is digital inequality still an issue in 2019? What does digital inequality in 2019 look like?
1: Yes, so it's a continuing issue. And I think it's partly because technology is always changing. So there'll always be these um, kind of differences in the ways that people access and use technology. um, And there'll always be differences in the outcomes that they are able to achieve with that technology as well. Um, So in 2019, we still have young people, for example, at schools who still don't have internet access or a laptop at home, um, which is perhaps somewhat surprising. Um, And we also sort of shift the goalposts all the time. So I, for example, am very against the idea that mobile devices are sufficient for learning. So if people just have a smartphone, I don't think that means that they are as connected, for example, Mm -hmm. as somebody who has a laptop at home and a smartphone and a tablet. Um, which means that they can really think about their creative, learning, social practices across different devices as and when they wish.
0: Yeah, yeah. so it's it's actually incorrect to say that everyone is now online and even those who are online, there are massive differences in the quality of their access. Now, Now, as you're talking, I'm thinking, what does all of this have to do with education? Presumably digital inequalities overlay onto educational inequalities. I mean, what do we know about how digital inequalities play out in educational contexts?
1: That's right. There's a multitude of ways that I think it plays out. So in the educational context, we see, for example, that there are differences in the ways that schools from um, richer and poorer areas would use technology. Um, And this obviously has implications then for the extent to which people are allowed to explore or play with technology at school. And we know that that's really important for digital skills. It's also about the extent to which people can go away and study in their own time and learn about their own interests mm. and play with tech. Um, and we see that then influencing some aspects of education. Um, I'd also like to see a lot more discussion in schools about um, how we can use tech to really allow people to think more broadly about Uh, what education is for and the kind of democratic purposes of education. I was just
0: wondering, actually, to flip the logic for a moment, is it realistic to imagine that the the education can be a place where we can address digital inequalities? I mean, as you say, is there a way that education can be used to give people digital opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I think schools, because they're constantly kind of put upon, they perhaps forget how important they can be in some people's ecosystems in terms of giving them a place to have access or to develop their skills. And I think it's a real shame because definitely for some of the groups that we've spoken to, young people who've left school, for example, um, from lower income groups who just don't have access, or some of these young people who just don't have laptops at home and still at school, you know, school can be a really important place yeah. for that. And and libraries can as well. And we've kind of forgotten that that can also be an important element. Yeah. So I think often we are quick to critique schools in all of this. Um, But I think they've kind of been disempowered really in what they're able to achieve because they've been sort of closed down in all different directions in terms of concerns about safety. So there's so many locks on uh, the internet in the schools that they, that nobody can really play with uh, finding out information in ways that they could at home.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's crucial to remember that these old fashioned institutions such as schools and libraries have a really important play- role to play in the 21st century. Now, let's move on to methods. I mean, how do you actually research what we've just been talking about? I mean, presumably you can't just ask people, are you digitally disadvantaged? I mean, what methods can you use?
1: No, that's really true. So we use a range of different methods. We've done a lot of national survey research. So we collect data from young people and uh, across the life course, actually, about how they use digital technologies and uh, the implications that it might have in their lives. Um, We also do a lot of interviews and ethnographies of how people use technology, both in their homes, um, in the school
0: and, uh, you know, on the move and so on. How do you actually conduct an ethnographic study of technologies? I mean, are you interrogating the digital side of things, the code? Are you just hanging around people when they use technology?
1: Uh, So you Definitely want to do both. So we hang out with people, but you also ask them, for example, um, if they might have a a games console or they might have a a pay-as-you-go phone and you kind of talk through with them what they're doing um, and what they use it for. You might also, for example, ask them to take um, photos over a week Mm -hmm. of all of their different tech uses or lack of tech uses um, and get them to sort of talk to you about those images and why they took those photos at that time. And that can be a really interesting insight into their wider experience. Um, We're also interested in capturing digital data, so you could use screen capture, for example, to see how uh, different uh, groups of young people use search engines um, to see the differences there. So there are all sorts of insights that you can get. But I think all the time you need a range of different methods in order to really capture What's going on?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, now I know you you work a lot with so-called trace data. I mean, often from thousands of users at scale that's often referred to as big data. I mean, there's been a lot of hype around big data and social research. I mean, what do you make of this big data turn in research? Is it all hype? Are academics going to lose their jobs, become a redundant part of the research process?
1: (laughs) I don't think academics are going to lose their jobs. I do. I've worked a lot with big data or digital trace data because I think it's important to figure out what it's able to offer us as researchers. Um, And I think it is definitely a a supplement or a complement to work that we already do, but it certainly doesn't displace our existing research practices. So the idea that it's the end of theory or it's the end of social science, I think is is really inaccurate. Saying that though, I think there is a bit of a challenge that as researchers, we need to engage with data methods to some extent, because if we don't, then it means that other communities and other groups will kind of take over some of our work. So we might see, for example, commercial companies coming in and being the kind of experts on data about how people are navigating certain apps or whatever, Um, or we might even see people from physics and engineering um, coming into the education space. And while that's kind of exciting and good, you need to also have educationalists as part of that picture. Yeah, yeah.
0: it's just a really seductive thing to be able to say, we've analysed four million tweets and we're able to say, this is what the public think. I mean, education research rarely gets to have that sense of scale. So, I mean, as you were hinting, I mean, education researchers need to develop some of these data skills. I mean, I guess there's a lot of catching up that education research needs to do.
1: That's right. And I don't. I think it can be on a kind of scale. So just like with quantitative and qualitative methods, I think all education researchers should be au fait in in both of those traditions Mm. but it's a sliding scale so it might be that we just learn how to have conversations with data scientists or it might be that we actually want to play with the data ourselves Um, there's lots of different kind of um, levels of expertise that we can all have um, and I think sometimes we think it's all or nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the challenges also is to find cooperative ways of working with these other disciplines and with people who have these skills. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, that's nice to hear. Now, now you're in a privileged position. Oxford University is a pretty rarefied place. But I mean, you've done your time working in other universities lower down the food chain. I mean, what do you now appreciate about Oxford in terms of working as an academic? I mean, what what can we learn? Are these things that we can engineer in our own universities?
1: What I love about working at Oxford is the fact that people are given space and time to think about their work and to do what they find interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there's a bit of a risk in universities generally that we're becoming more managerial and there's concerns about being very efficient in our work practices and and accounting for our time. And while those things are important, it risks... um, reducing the space i suppose for people to have these kind of intellectual uh, debates with each other and time to think and write and and kind of really try and develop the th- field so that's the thing i most appreciate about oxford i'm not sure how easy it is to kind of create that in other universities i'm sure it happens to some mm. extent um but i think all of us could think carefully about what universities are for and perhaps you know we're kind of shifting to a, a managerial model that is. Forgetting some of that debate that we used to have in the 90s, for example, about the purpose of universities. Yeah,
0: yeah, for the public good. Now, finally, you're not on Twitter, (laughs) which is really rare for someone working in ed tech research. I mean, why don't you do social media? I was just wondering, why not?
1: Um, No, I don't. And I know that makes me very unusual. Um, There's two reasons, really. So I do use Twitter as an information source, um, but I can self promote our projects when needed through um, our existing networks, for example, at the Internet Institute and so on. Um, and I just find that it takes away a lot of time for thinking. So I'd rather think um, rather than kind of um, use it as a self-promotion tool, I suppose.
0: Yeah, yeah, slow scholarship. Excellent. Well, thanks ever so much for taking the time for doing this, Rebecca. I know you're not a natural self-promoter, so I appreciate taking the time out to do this. Thanks ever so much.
1: Thanks, Neil.